0: Hi, this is Orrin. If you find these teachings useful and you'd like to learn more about my work, you can visit me online at orenjsofer.com or on social media at Orenj.Sopher. Thanks so much. So we have this, um, this path, these amazing teachings that have come down uh, to us from over two millennia ago. Uh, and here we are. Uh, living through the sixth mass, mass extinction on the planet. Um, gross income inequality. Um, the breakdown of democracy, not just in our country, but all over the planet. Um, disintegration of the social, social fabric. I could go on, but I probably don't need to. You live in Berkeley. So, um, so what do these have to do with each other? Right? How does our meditation practice apply? to our life today? This is the question that I ask myself every day. I've been on this path for more than 20 years, um, and it's what keeps it alive for me, right? If this practice isn't informing our life, if it's not helping us to make decisions, if it's not helping us uh, respond to what's happening in our lives personally, socially, collectively, then what good is it, right? It's great if you can sit on your own, in your apartment, or here at the monastery, where it's peaceful and quiet and feel calm. And and it really is great. It's, it's a really essential thing to be able to do in life. But it's not enough. And it's not the purpose. That's not the goal. It's not the aim of this practice. Uh, so what I'd like to do tonight is I'd like to talk about this, um, the meditation practice specifically. The path is obviously much larger than the meditation practice. It's a whole eightfold path, not a onefold path. And it includes the cultivation of wisdom, uh, ethical living in terms of our relationships, our livelihood, the choices we make in life, and the cultivation of meditation. Uh, Tonight I want to talk about the meditation practice and how it can be a resource for us in the choices that we make in life, particularly by focusing on one aspect of the meditation practice that, ironically, we don't hear a lot about. Ironically, I say ironically because it's the name of the meditation that we do here. It's called insight meditation or in Pali Vipassana meditation. But often we don't hear a lot about the insight part. So why and what is that and how does it apply to our lives? So sometimes the meditation practice that we do is called samatha vipassana. Is two parts, and the guided meditation that we did earlier this evening had those two parts. So samatha in Pali or shamatha in uh, other uh, ancient Indian languages means calming or um, abiding. So this is the f- this is the part of the meditation practice that often gets the most press because it's the simplest. It's really easy to teach. It's not easy to do, but it's easy to teach. And the basic practice is choose one thing and keep coming back to it. And whatever else comes up, just set it aside. Right. So it's the instruction that we hear all the time wherever you go, whether it's on the meditation app or in corporate America or even at a lot of the Buddhist meditation groups here and around the country. Pay attention to your breath. When a thought comes up, let it go and come back, begin again, right? Is there anyone who hasn't heard this before? (laughs) Okay, so this is concentration or calming practice, and it's really useful, right? It's really important to be able to strengthen this capacity that we have to focus the mind, to choose where we place our attention, and to keep it there, right? There's all kinds of benefits that come with shamatha meditation, um, from increasing the power of our mind uh, to rejuvenation. Right? How many people feel a little bit felt a little bit more recharged after the sit, even if it wasn't quote a good sit? Right? There's just something about removing the distractions and disengaging from the continual stimulation and activity of our daily life in modern United States, that's recharging. Samatha practice also helps us to become more whole again. It heals the heart. So one of the great tragedies of um, our society today is the structure of our lives, the structure of our institutions, um, and the design of our technology fragments our attention. Right? Our, our awareness and our mind is pulled in a hundred different directions, like every five or ten minutes, you know, by stimulation, by things demanding our attention, tasks that need to be done, going online and just, or well, watching TV, just the pace of information that's coming in. So what samatha practice does is it counters that fragmentation. Instead of everything going out and moving from one thing to the next to the next rapidly, it goes in the other direction. It pulls and gathers everything in and collects it. And so this heals the heart and the mind. It brings us back into a state of wholeness and balance. So this in and of itself is rewarding. Uh, nourishing, and pleasurable. But that's not going to get you health insurance. right? That's not going to pay the rent. Uh, that's not going to help you deal with your mother-in-law or your neighbor next door or whatever the situation is on a small scale, personally, or on a large scale. What it's going to do is it's going to help clear our mind so that we can look more soberly at whatever the situation is that we're facing and make a wise choice. This is where vipassana practice comes in. This is where the whole second phase of the meditation is meant to be applied. So the samatha is like... Um, If you think about your mind, say, like a lens, it's cleaning the lens and it's sharpening the focus. Now you've got a really powerful, clear lens. What do you want to look at? How do you want to apply the steadiness, the collectedness, the clarity, the power of a mind that's concentrated, clear, and gathered? Right. So if you, if we want to learn about anything, we need to be able to observe it, to stay with it. Right. If you've got, say, um, an old pocket watch, that's a wind up, and it stops working, and you like to tinker with things, you open up the back, and you want to figure out what's broken, how come it's not working. Right. You need to actually stay with it for enough time. You need to have the right tools. You need a, a looking glass, maybe. You need to really observe it and see how's it work, right? If I move this gear, does that gear move? How's it all fit together? If every, you know, 30 seconds you're getting up and doing something else, you're not going to learn anything about that pocket watch, right? Because you need to actually observe it long enough to start to see how the parts fit together and what's working there. So the summits of the concentration practice is like getting, um, getting your magnifying glass or your your uh, pocket watch, um, uh, looking glass, and putting everything else down, closing the door, telling the family that you're going to be busy, and and then just staying with that one task and observing it. The vipassana is the looking. It's the inquiry and the investigation into whatever the problem is. Whatever the theme or the area is that you want to understand, so how do we practice vipassana? How do we actually do this? And what does it even mean? What is insight? What do we have insight into? So I'd like to share a little bit about this terrain. What is insight, and how do we how do we uh, cultivate it? So in the uh, and then and then towards the end, maybe come back to this larger question of where we are today um, as a society and, and collectively and how this applies. So there are many different kinds of insight that can arise uh on the on the contemplative path. I like to think about them in three different ways. So the first I call personal insight. These are insights into the circumstances of our life. So for example, you're meditating, or you're out in nature, um, you're talking with a friend, and your perspective shifts and you realize, oh, wow, that really hurt when they said that. That's why it was bothering me. Actually, that really hurt. Or you realize, wow, I'm really mad at them. That wasn't cool what they did. So we have a shift in our perspective about something in our personal life that's about the circumstances. Something that happened, something we said or did, something someone else said or did, or a larger pattern. And this happens sometimes just when the mind is quiet or a different information comes in, and we see it in a different way. So this is one of the hallmarks of insight. It's a shift in perspective. We see something differently than we saw it before. It's not something new that comes into being. It's just that we weren't seeing it that way before. So we can have personal insight into our life. We can have psychological insights. So this is on a slightly deeper level. It's not so much about the circumstances, that thing that happened between me and you the other day. We start to actually understand the functioning of our own personality. Right? It's not that you said that thing and it bothered me. It's that, wait a minute, I often get bothered when people say that kind of thing to me. Why is that? Oh, I see. I don't, I don't really trust that it's okay for me to need help. That's interesting. Where's that come from? So we start to actually understand a certain pattern in our own mind or heart. That's part of our personality, part of our psychology. It's like we're getting, we're getting a deeper look into the structure of this particular person. Maybe a pattern that's there, or sometimes even where it comes from. We're able to put together the pieces like, oh, that experience with my mother or my father or that teacher at school or that thing that happened. So this is a deeper level of insight. Then we have insight that's what's referred to more classically in the Buddha's teachings, as insight is insight into the nature of this life, what we could call more existential or universal insight. And this isn't personal anymore. It's not about me or you. This is an insight into what it is to be human. We start to understand something more essential about life, about the heart and the mind and the way that it works, not just in ourself but in anyone. We start to see um the universal processes of life. So what are some of these things that, uh, that we might see or realize? So classically, there are um, three different areas that we have insight into in the Buddhist path. We have insight into impermanence, change, inconstancy, the fact that everything's changing. We all know this. But we see it at a deeper level. So I remember the first time I had an insight into the impermanence of an emotion. I was driving from the place where I was living in rural Massachusetts to the nearby town. It was about a 45-minute drive. And I was feeling anxious about something. I don't remember the context. I remember feeling anxious. That, that sort of feeling that there's some problem that I need to solve that's not okay and I have to do something about it, and what if? Right? <clears throat> so I'm driving along, and because I was practicing, I was mindful of the anxiety. I noticed it. I was like, oh, wow, this is anxiety. Okay, there's anxiety present. I felt it in my body and was kind of observing it. And then my mind wandered, so I'd stopped being mindful. The mind wandered somewhere. I started thinking about something else. The mind wandered somewhere else. Five, ten minutes later, still driving, the anxiety was totally gone. Because my mind had forgotten whatever it was that it was sort of fixated on and anxious about. But what was different was because I had been mindful of the anxiety, because I had really noticed it and felt it fully, the moment awareness returned, there was mindfulness again. I was like, whoa, anxiety's gone. It's like not here at all. And in that moment, there was this very clear seeing of the impermanence of that emotion. Now, one of the other hallmarks of insight is that it applies across other contexts. So once you see one emotion clearly and understand its nature as impermanent, you will never see any other emotion the same way. There's an understanding at a deeper level that recognizes this isn't just about anxiety. And this isn't just about me. All emotions are like this. Each of us knows if we touch a stove or something that's burning, that it's hot, right? That it's going to burn our hands. We didn't know that at one point in our life, but we learned it. We touch something hot, ouch, that burns. Now, you don't need to touch every single stove or every single thing that's burning to know that it's hot right? Once you touch one thing that's burning, you know, okay, if it's burning, it's hot. Don't touch it. It applies across all different contexts. That's what insight does. We see an emotion clearly, and we recognize, oh, it's all. Everything's like that. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't forget sometimes, but as soon as awareness returns, that insight can come back. So we have insight into impermanence, into the way things change. We have insight into um, unsatisfactoriness, as it's translated. Um, the sense that, that nothing's really finished in life. Things don't get complete. It's not like a Hollywood movie where everything works out in the end and it's all tied up in a bow and it's done. Right? There's always something else. It just keeps going. And even the good stuff, as good as it can be, doesn't really satisfy us in a complete and lasting way. It's It's not that there's no satisfaction, but nothing really does it for us in the way that we're totally sated, right? Is there anything you've ever experienced that has completely satisfied you in a lasting way? It lasts for a little while, and depending on what it is, it may last for longer, but eventually it fades off, fades. And again, we all know this, but we see this at a deeper level. Because of impermanence, because everything's changing, we recognize, oh, it's not me. It's not that I'm doing something wrong, that I don't feel satisfied by whether it's the new pair of pants or the new gadget or the new job or the new relationship. That's the way these things are built. That's their nature is that they change, and so that satisfaction doesn't last. This is another kind of insight that we can have. I was um, given the opportunity to learn a lot about this aspect of, of our lives um, over the last 15 years or so, with uh, health challenges, various health challenges since I've been in my mid-20s, digestive disorders, Lyme disease, and kind of like got a good mix of things going at various times. And um, it was a real practice to observe very closely the expectation that it should be otherwise, that the body should be healthy and recognize bodies get sick. It's not something gone wrong. It's just what bodies do. They get old, they hurt, they get sick, and eventually they die. That's what the body does. And to see like when the when when my heart was actually open to that truth, oh right. Yeah. This is the way it is. This is the truth of this existence that things change and they don't satisfy us, including the body, then there is some peace. Even when there was unpleasant sensation, even when I had a headache or pain in my guts, it's like, oh, it's okay because it's just part of it. There wasn't that fighting with it. The insight into the incomplete or unfulfilling nature of life which doesn't mean that we can't still enjoy things, that we can't still pursue our goals. It just means our perspective shifts. We're not expecting something to deliver in a way that it can't. Last uh, dimension of insight that we have in this path is um, insight into the nature of the self, anatta or non-self. Uh, This is the trickiest to kind of get one's head around uh, because it's counterintuitive. We very much feel like ourself. You know, when that feeling isn't there, if it's not accompanied by deep insight and equanimity, it's called psychosis. Right. So, having a sense of self is really important in life, like knowing who I am and where I come from. That there's coherence here psychologically. Um. But what happens is that sense of who I am starts to uh, get rigid and take up a lot of space. And we mistake it for something more than it actually is, just a construct, rather than this is who and what I am. And then we start defending it, trying to prop it up, um, trying to fulfill it with things that can't actually do that, competing with others, and so forth. So... Um, so this insight into not just oneself but the nature of of everything that the concepts that we have about life aren't as static as they seem there's no such thing as a thing that everything is a process and that everything depends on everything else so the other side of this teaching on non-self is interdependence that everything exists in relation to everything else and this is All of these, um, this, this, these teachings and this insight that came from the Buddha 2600 years ago has been borne out by modern, uh, science and quantum physics that you look into anything deeply enough, there's nothing there. It's just probabilities. And that nothing exists without everything else. So, practically, what does all this mean? Practically, I remember the first time I had an insight into this non-self aspect of, of our lives. It was just after a meditation retreat. And I was sitting in my room. Not really doing much of anything, because I just meditated for ten days, so that kind of frenetic pressure to keep busy was not pestering me yet. I'm a Virgo born in September, so I like things to be tidy and neat. If you go to any of my events, you see all the flyers are lined up really neatly, and it's a very beautiful aesthetic. So I'm sitting there in my room, and then this, this impulse arises with a thought that says, well, I guess I better clean my room. And I was just about to get up and start cleaning my room. When the the mindfulness, the awareness caught it, it was sharp enough from the retreat to actually see Wait a minute, that's a thought. And then the awareness kind of recognized I don't need to clean my room. I just sit here. And in that moment there was this understanding that thought's not me. I don't have to obey that thought just because it arose. It's it's just a thought accompanied by a certain impulse or intention. And it came into being, it was seen and known, and then it vanished. This is an insight into the impersonal nature of thought, as well as intention. So after, how many people here have ever sat in a meditation retreat? How many of you are? And So after a retreat, those first hours and days are really ripe for insight. It's a really rich time to have insight, not just um, on all of these levels, the personal, the psychological, and the universal level. Because the mind is more clear and powerful, and then you step back into your life, and all of the habits, internally and externally, come back. They rush back in. But you can see them from a different vantage point. So you can start to actually make some changes and shift the way you relate to those habits and patterns. Another insight into this impersonal nature of things, but not inwardly, outwardly. So this sense of um, anatta outwardly recognizes that what we take something to be is not really what it is. So I was on a meditation retreat, standing outside, and I felt the wind. And then this thought, there's the wind. And then in that moment, the mind understood more clearly that there's no such thing as wind. The wind is a thought. That's a concept. And, and there was the knowing very clearly of what was actually happening, which was sound, It's a very soft pressure and coolness. And that constellation of of sensory experience, of a whooshing noise, a very soft pressure, and a little bit of coolness, the mind recognized as the concept wind. And it puts it together. It makes it into wind. It recognizes it. That's what perception does. So there's this insight into what we take something to be as solid. The wind is just a constellation of different moments of experience. There's no wind there. This is an insight into the the selfless nature of phenomena. It's not what we actually take it to be. So these different kinds of insights into change or impermanence, into the unsatisfactory or incomplete nature of things, and into who we are, what we are, what this life is, this transforms how we relate to the world. We relate with a, a kind of deeper knowing or wisdom that allows us To move through the world without getting too caught up in things. To make choices and to act wholeheartedly and completely without getting in our own way. So how do we develop these insights? On the personal level, on the psychological level, or at this deepest level? What is this practice of vipassana? So there are many different ways to practice vipassana meditation. I want to share just a few um, suggestions with you that you can explore. So the, the mechanism of insight, the way it works, is as concentration grows, that samatha practice, moment-to-moment mindfulness, it's the continuity of awareness from one moment to the next, That creates the conditions for insight to arise. So in that example of the impermanence of emotion that I gave, right, it was, the continuity wasn't even that good. It was like, I forgot, I lost mindfulness. But there was enough continuity. There was enough awareness to see it change. To see, here's anxiety, it seems really real, I'm really anxious, now it's gone. Insight arose because there's that continuity from one moment to the next. Enough understanding. Uh, Same thing with that insight like into the thought. There was the seeing clearly from one moment to the next. The thought came, it vanished. It's not me. Wind, what is wind? There's the knowing of the moment-to-moment experience. Hearing, touching, pressure, coolness. Ah, wind, a thought. That's what's happening. So it's this continuity of awareness, of mindfulness, that gives rise to insight, staying with something long enough to understand it. So to practice this, the basic practice of insight meditation that we teach in this tradition is this is this moment-to-moment awareness. And this is what I was encouraging you to explore during the sitting, is instead of just staying with the breath or your anchor, if you're working with a different anchor, what's it like to just start to observe what's happening right now from moment to moment and see how things change? The clearer and more continual and sharper your awareness is, the more you'll start to see clearly the nature of the experience. Sounds come and go, thoughts come and go, sensations come and go. It's all just kind of a flux, a flow of change. Now there's a particular quality that is um, necessary for insight to arise, a particular mental factor, and this is the factor of investigation. It's, the Buddha called it an awakening factor. The Pali, for those of you who have done some study, is called Dhamma Vijaya. It means investigation into the state of things, looking into things deeply. So what is this quality? This is something that we all have innately, and I want to give you an example so that you can relate to it and know it in yourself so that you can start to use it in your meditation practice and in your life I'm going to use uh, a visual metaphor, but it's not this investigation isn't necessarily a visual thing. So there are these beautiful orchids here, and here, and here. So if you wanted to know if these flowers are real or fake, okay. So here's a question. You could say it's a problem. Something that you want to understand. Okay. So this problem or question could be anything. Could be anything in your life. Could be a relationship. Could be a decision. Could be the nature of reality. Could be climate change. Could be immigration. Border control. Okay. Any problem you want to understand. You need this you first, you need concentration. The mind needs to be gathered. You need awareness, mindfulness, a continuity of awareness. You also need this quality of investigation. What is investigation? Well, if you want to know if these flowers are real or not, what do you need to do? How are you going to find out? Okay, you're going to look. What are you going to are you Are going to look from there? Where are you going to look from? Right, you're gonna get right up close. Okay, so here's one condition. We know we wanna approach the problem and get as close as possible. Okay, and then we're gonna observe, right? So you said you're gonna look. What else are you gonna do? Right, you might touch them. You might smell them. Right? So what's happening here? We're using all of our senses, all of our intelligence to observe very, very closely with this very specific question in mind right are these real now you're not going to get up real close and just go seeing seeing white white smelling smelling noting what's happening that's not going to that's not going to bring any insight into whether the flowers are not are real right if you're being a very diligent vipassana meditator noting your experience from moment to moment you might just be noting seeing seeing white color shape, seeing, that's not going to help you determine if they're real. This is very important. You need to look with a very particular interest to know, what is this? Now that interest isn't an analysis. You're not sitting there thinking, is it real or is it fake? I'll bet it's it's real. It's a monastery. They wouldn't put fake flowers. Well, No, they operate on donation. Orchids are really expensive. That's probably fake. That's not going to help you, right? So there's a question in the mind, but you're not thinking about it per se. The mind needs to get very quiet. So there's this listening. You put everything else aside, and you just observe with all of your senses, very quietly, patiently. You get closer, you get closer. You're looking, you're smelling, maybe you're touching. And then what happens? At a certain point, the mind has enough data, something flips, right? All of a sudden, it comes together. Oh, they're real. Or they're fake. And now, now you know. No one can convince you otherwise. You don't need to keep observing with that level of detail because you've understood it. The problem's been solved. This is the, this is the, this is how insight arises. So, Dhamma Vijaya, investigation, this quality of looking very steadily, deeply, with curiosity, with interest, using all of your senses, all of your intelligence, and then waiting. So, we can't make insight arise, but we can create the conditions. That's the point of meditation practice, is to create the conditions for insight to arise. We steady the mind, we gather our attention, we cultivate continuity of mindfulness, and then we look deeply, with interest, with our heart's full attention, and then wait. Just observe, patiently, quietly, waiting for the mind to work it out on its own for enough data to come together for something to shift, a different perspective. The beauty of this practice is that it's not something new we're creating. You didn't make those flowers real or fake. They were always that way. You just didn't know until you observed closely enough. The insights that this path reveals are always there. You just don't see them. That's called ignorance. They become obscured or masked by the tendencies and the habits in our mind. So one analogy, one metaphor is, I grew up on the East Coast, and there the forests are many deciduous forests, and in the spring and the summer, the forests are full of leaves. And if you stand at the edge of the forest, you can't see into the forest very far, because of all the leaves. But in the fall, the leaves change colors, and they fall, they drop from the trees. And in the winter, when there are no leaves on the trees, you stand at the edge of the forest and you can see pretty deep into the forest because there are no leaves. So through the practice of meditation, certain things fall away. The blinders, the habits, the assumptions that we have about ourself, about life, start to fall away as the power of our mind gets clearer and stronger. And then we can see something that's always been there, but we've never quite noticed it because we were too busy, too preoccupied, had too many assumptions. But we actually have to take the time to slow down, to look, to observe, to wait. And then something we've never seen before that's always been there occurs. And in that seeing, it's transformative. So this is one way to cultivate insight. This is sort of a classical way, meditatively through moment-to-moment awareness and studying something deeply. I want to mention briefly um, a couple of ways to apply this to other situations, and then uh, we'll wrap up and have some questions or discussion. As the mind settles in meditation practice, as awareness grows, you can take this quality of investigation and apply it to anything. And so I was also suggesting this in the meditation we did earlier tonight. So there's a few ways to do this, and I'm just going to sketch this out very briefly. Um, So one is just to call to mind a question, and then listen. So any question that you have, just introduce that question. And then stay in that state of quiet, clear, patient listening with that same quality of observation that you might bring to wanting to know are these flowers real or not. Keep the question there in the forefront of your awareness and then just listen. Just wait. Stay with it. And see what comes. Without taking anything as final, just keep observing, listening. Wonderful question! In this way, is to ask what's needed. Really useful question for developing insight and wisdom. What's needed here? You can do this with a question, a theme, a problem. So this is another uh, whole way of cultivating insight. I'll mention I'll mention one uh, one last one. Which is, um, by making a, a firm resolution. So this uh, tends to work best with deeper states of concentration, but can also work with, um, just meditation practice at, at sort of less concentrated levels. So at the beginning of your meditation, or if you're, if you have very strong concentration as you enter a state of concentration, you make a firm resolution. You say, may I have a deep insight into whether it's something classical like impermanence or unsatisfactoriness, or it could be something in your life. May I have a deep insight into the nature of, of this relationship? May I have a deep insight into how I can best contribute in my life? And then you, you set that, and then you let it go. Then you practice wholeheartedly, and then at the end, see what comes. This is another way to cultivate insight. So I want to bring this back to where we started with the sort of problems and challenges that we're facing, um, as a society. So one of the great gifts of this practice is to use the path to investigate for each of us, what's our role? What's our place? How do, how do I respond? And whether it's joining a local group like the Extinction Rebellion group that, um, Greg, Greg and Doug, Doug and Linda mentioned, thank you. Um, you know, whether, whether it's volunteering, whether it's going down to the border, you know, whatever the issue is that's calling you, use your practice to really look deeply and ask the tough question. What does it mean to have integrity? What's my response? What's my place here? Where are the people that I need to connect to? Because the purpose of insight is to live our life in a different way. The purpose of insight is that it helps us, it helps transform our relationship to the world so that we can respond with all of our energy, all of our wisdom, and all of our goodness and not hold back out of fear out of overwhelm, out of paralysis, out of despair. And so this path, this practice, has a very important role to play, I believe, in responding to the call of our times, healing our hearts, overcoming the inner obstacles, and then asking the hard questions so that we can get clear, how do I act? What is a wise response? I'll stop here for tonight and offer this for your reflection. I hope it's of use. And so we have some time um, for uh, any questions uh or comments that you'd like to to share. Uh the one thing that I would ask is to just keep in mind the, you know, 30 40 of us here will take about 10 minutes so to just bear that in mind so that we're practicing generosity with one another and leaving space for as many voices as possible. So if you have a question you'd like to ask uh, or a comment to share, just raise your hand and um, send over the mic. And so this could be related to um, the talk uh, or it could be more generally about the
1: practice
0: or the path. Yeah, please, in your name.
1: Uh, Phil. Uh, generally, when I meditate, I'm good for about maybe between 18 and 24 seconds of I'm breathing, I'm sitting in a chair. <clears throat> so, I mean, shy of going on a two-week-long retreat, Yeah, it seems like it's a little wimpy to try to uh, reflect on the meaning of life or even if I should be doing this or that. I mean, do you have any Suggestions? Yeah,
0: yeah. Um, I do. What happens after eighteen to twenty-four seconds? Well,
1: then I start thinking about riding my bike, or I'm mad at that guy, or oh, hey, wait a minute, I'm sitting in a chair. I'm with a bunch of people. I'm breathing. You know, then that's good Uh for. How
0: how do you prepare for meditation? What do you would do beforehand?
1: uh, Drive here, walk in, sit in the chair. Okay. And then I, I think, okay, I'm feeling my body hitting the chair. Yeah, uh, that is a, typically keeps me yeah. in the now. Yeah. But then I noticed recently I can do other things as well. Right. So, um, so I'll just share a few pointers. Um,
0: first and foremost, don't make a problem out of it. I wouldn't. I wouldn't stress about it. It's. Um, that's what the mind does it it gets distracted it thinks about different things that's his job his job is to take care of us and scan the environment and make sure we're safe so that's what it's going to do so this is a process of training training takes time um how you prepare for meditation is really important so um it's helpful if you're getting exercise do some stretching uh, take come a little bit early take a walk around the block Just get in your body a little bit, let the day kind of burn off. See if you can do some light stretching, maybe some deep breathing. You want to have your physiology working to your advantage. You know, if we're running around all day, we're driving in traffic, we're going to get here, we're going to find a parking place, we're going to sit down, seat. The mind's going to be going at that pace, you know, so build in some transition time so that you can ease into the meditation. That's going to set you up for a little bit more, uh, traction. In the meditation. Um, meditation needs to be pleasurable, at least some, or we're just going to check out. So um, try to find a really comfortable posture and focus on something that feels good. So um, the out-breath usually feels good unless you have asthma, trauma to your throat, um, or certain other, you know, factors that make the breath uncomfortable. If that's not the case for you, Try to see if you can tune into the aspects of the breath that feel relaxing, which is going to help the mind want to stay here. If you're not working with the breath, focus on sounds. Notice how easy it is to hear. You don't have to work for it. It just comes to you. Ah, it's so nice. We want to the mind won't want to stay here if it if it's not feeling nourished. So we need to like one of the analogies is like make like a little nest for it. You know, like, it's going kind of like, ah, oh, it's nice. I just want to kind of get cozy and stay here. Um, and then, and then the last thing is, is we have to want to do it. So reconnect with your motivation. What's your purpose? Why are you here? Make that really clear. And then, and then let that motivation energize you because it takes energy to, to meditate. So those are a few, a few suggestions you can play with. Thanks, Phil.
1: I do appreciate the 37 seconds I get every now and again.
0: Absolutely. Well, you know, the other thing is um, it's really just one moment at a time. So if you can be aware of one out breath, that's great. And just do it again. Just one, 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 one. That's it.
1: My name's Henry.
2: Hi, Henry. Uh, thank you. I was recently at Spirit Rock for a two day, uh, with Tina Rasmussen learning about Samatha. Ah, yeah. Um, and I had her is my first time being at Spirit Rock, first time at a retreat. And I had, I've read various Vipassana books, learning that was how I started meditating was focusing on the breath, yeah. and doing insight and sort of figuring myself out. And one of the things that tina said was you start with samatha which you've echoed as yeah. well and then you move to vipassana right. and she was suggesting to sort of stick with the practice for a while and build uh-huh. that up and then kind of switch and yes. by going through that two day, i sort of realized how much i really do need to concentrate you know, yeah going how hard it is to just sort of sit sometimes and stay focused and yeah. that two days was very changing for me which is in my concentration went up and I can echo the last couple of days after that you know interesting things were happening and I started as I got back into my normal life and things started coming up again I it became significantly harder to stay on the breath yes. I kept seeing these things kind of hitting me sure. harder and harder and where I had to sort of stop and don't focus on the breath listen to this thing right right hear it yes. and then kind of kind of come back to breath I was wondering if you could sort of help sort of know when to do that and when to focus on the breath i've been right kind of telling myself that at least for a few months i was going to try to just stick with the breath and just forget mm. the insight thing for a while just to build up that concentration right. and then get the insight sure sure um but that was a fool's errand i think <laughs> which i learned pretty quickly um yeah but i did find that the insight after that uh weekend yep. came a lot quicker yep. just with that concentration i could sort of figure it out faster and get back to my breath but yeah, and, yeah.
0: Um, so first thing is, uh, there are many different views on this. Um, there's a whole spectrum of like how much concentration is required and, and so forth. Um, they're not really separate. Concentration and insight, uh, is the view that I ascribe to. <laughs> um, because we need some level of insight to concentrate. You, you need to actually apply some discernment and recognize, okay, yeah, that's not important now. Stay with this. Yeah, put that down. Okay, stay with this. Um, and so the, the two kind of go hand in hand and can develop together. Um, I think in terms of the, the question that you're asking, there's some intuitive wisdom that's needed. Right? To discern what do I set aside and, and come back? And when do I actually say, no, this is important, stay with this. So, um, there's a few places you can look or guidelines you can use. Um, so one is like if it keeps coming back and you could, some, some teachers will say like three times, you know, so, Okay, you're with the breath, pain in the knee. With the breath, pain in the knee. With the breath, pain in the knee. Third time, okay, just be aware of the knee. If you're the kind of person who doubts, who gets into this kind of like, well, should I, shouldn't I, what about the concentration? It's like, just make it simple. Third time, stay with it. That's one way you can do it. Um, another way you can do it is notice if there's struggle. So sometimes something can keep coming back but there's not any struggle it's just like oh yeah there's that thought like don't forget to do the laundry forget to do the laundry I already do the laundry laundry <laughs> it's like but you're not struggling with it it's not like God I gotta do the laundry no no don't think about the laundry it's just like it just keeps coming but it doesn't take a lot of energy to keep coming back if there's not struggle it doesn't matter just keep coming back but when there's that you recognize the relationship to whatever the quote distraction is, is charged, right? There's that, there's that like magnetic pull and it's like, then maybe that's a signal. Okay, maybe there's something here that needs to be for, sort of felt or known. And then just, and then that's a place you can then just let it in. That's another way. The third is just actually asking the question. Like, what's useful now? what's needed now, and just relying on your own wisdom. The last thing I'll say is that um, there are different kinds of concentration. Um, And you can develop moment-to-moment concentration without just being with the breath. So, for example, you're with the breath, you're with the breath, there's a painful sensation in the knee. You let go of the breath, you're with the painful sensation in the knee. If you're really with that sensation, and observing it, it's aching, it's twisting, it's tight, it's hard, it's sharp, it's aching, it's burning, it's throbbing, throbbing, it's burning, it's, now it's fading, it's fading. Concentration is developing because you're staying with that, and then it's gone, you come back to the breath. And then there's a jackhammer outside, oh, there's hearing, hearing, and then it stops, you come back to the breath. That's still developing concentration. It's a different kind of concentration. Then that, then the sort of one pointed or moving more towards like an absorptive concentration with just staying with one theme. Um, but that doesn't mean you can't still be developing concentration just because you're not with the breath. Thank you. So we're coming to the end of our time. So let's, uh, let's try, let's shift gears here. Once again, if uh, if you want to stay in touch, I would really love that. To invite you to jot your email address down on um, on the clipboard there, or if if you uh, if you enjoy having social media in your life, I'm on the different social media channels. You can check me out there at Orange J. Sofer. So just bringing your attention into the heart. Calling forth some kindness in whatever way you know how. Thinking of a friend, a mentor, a pet, historical figure, just that beautiful quality of kindness, goodwill, and friendship. Recognizing that there's no one more deserving of our own love than ourself. We're just starting there at home. May I be well, safe, and happy. Sharing this wish for the happiness and well-being with one another here tonight. Sending it outwards to friends and family near and far. Sending it out further to all of those who are lonely and confused. To anyone in your life who you feel like could use a little love right now. Sending these wishes to Carol and Art on the loss of Snapper. These wishes of well-being and safety to Vivian, losing her home of 12 years. To dear friends who recently lost their adult son. To all those seeking asylum and refuge in this country, on other continents. To all of the non human beings needing protection for their environment and habitat. And for this whole beautiful, vibrant, delicate planet. wishes of love safety and well-being may there be more peace clarity and love in each of our hearts may that spread out far and wide in all directions for the happiness the safety, and the peace of all beings everywhere. Thank you so much for your practice, for sharing time together. I look forward to seeing you again. If anyone wants to say hi, I'll I'll hang out for, for a little bit. Get home safely.